Well, once again, we come together via the internet. Unfortunately, we're not able to meet. It's a very difficult thing. My, how I miss all of you. Asking somebody in the body of Christ to not be a part of the body is like taking a lung out of a human body, setting it over somewhere by itself and expecting it to survive. And I guess that's how we all feel at some level, being separated like we are because of this coronavirus pandemic. And I have to say that when this whole thing is over with, I hope that we can have a picnic to end all picnics at Calvary Bible Church, where we can actually shake hands, hug each other, maybe even greet each other with a holy kiss. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to being with you once again in person. Well, this morning I would like to address the issue of pandemic. I would like for us to look at it from a biblical perspective. And so I'm going to be examining this this Sunday and next Sunday, looking at a variety of passages. To begin with, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon said this in Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. If there's ever a time that we need to understand and apply this passage of Scripture, it is now, in these days of uncertainty. However, I fear that often we misunderstand and misinterpret, frankly, what that passage is saying. Many times we think of it this way, trust in the Lord with the deepest conviction you can possibly muster pertaining to your confidence in God. Really dig down deep and grab that confidence and piously refuse to analyze anything with your own mind, but just keep acknowledging and recognizing God in every area of your life, and then when you do all of this, He will just take over every situation and make things go smoothly. Well, folks, that's not what that passage is saying. If you look at the context, you'll see that in Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12, there is really a unit of thought with a clear progression. If you look at the first verse, you see that that the writer bids the son to memorize his father's teachings. In verse 2, he promises uh, life and peace as a result of this. In verse 3, he urges the son not to let steadfast love and truth forsake him. And in verse 4, he promises that this is central to finding favor with God and and man. And then he says in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And ultimately what he's saying here is study, labor to understand, memorize, and Put into practice, practice the, the words of God. Commit all of who you are to His grace and to His truth. And abandon every attempt to attain blessing apart from His strength and apart from His wisdom. And then he says, and do not lean on your own understanding, which literally means do not depend on mere human understanding, but trust God enough 
to study what he says, learn what he says, lean on what he says, his revealed understanding, which I'm teaching you in this book. And then the author goes on to say, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In other words, in all your undertakings, take notice of him, seek his will. And then he adds, and he will make your path straight. In other words, God himself will cause you to live a life that is morally and spiritually straight as opposed to crooked and contrary to his word and to his will. And then Solomon concludes this section saying, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In fact, you could summarize this truth by reading Proverbs 16 and verse 20. There he says, he who gives attention to the word shall find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And so I wish to draw your attention this morning to the word of God regarding this pandemic that we are all enduring so that we can better understand what it means to really trust God so that we can be blessed by him. You know, crises test our faith. I think you would all agree with that. Calamities reveal who and what we put our trust in, what we put our confidence in. And for most people in the world today, the coronavirus pandemic has really shaken their faith. It has exposed their their misplaced dependencies. It has exposed the foolish, powerless entities in which they have placed their confidence. I find it interesting The motto of our nation is, in God we trust. In fact, it appears on our American currency. But I fear it's really a meaningless motto if you think about it. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines trust as, quote, the assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something, one in which confidence is placed. Well, if we trust in God, you would think that all of that would be true of who we are in relation to him. But most Americans, frankly, live as if God doesn't even exist. They don't really trust in him. They trust in themselves. They trust in their bank account. They trust in their 401k. They trust in their government, in their military, in their doctors, in their hospitals, in their pharmaceuticals. But what happens when all of those things are rendered powerless? And that's what we're experiencing in many ways today with this pandemic. Many people also trust in a God of their own making, a God that doesn't even exist, a God that merely winks at sin, a God that exists to make us all happy, a God that is so loving that he is not only tolerant of sexual perversions, but he actually embraces them. They trust in a God that seems to be a bit stingy, but you can learn how to manipulate him and pry the goodies out of his fingers. Or a God whose will is ultimately subservient to man's will. One who can be impressed by man's goodness. A God who on the basis of man's merit, can grant eternal life. And many people believe in a God that is not jealous of his name, but rather is content to be called by any name 
or a God who will save everyone, no matter what they believe. We live in a nation, frankly, in a world where most people laugh at the idea that God is the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer and the consummator of all things. They reject the fact that he has revealed himself in Scripture and in the person and the work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They resent the fact that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient word of the one true God, who is an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all of his attributes, a God who is one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving of worship and obedience. In fact, the Bible is routinely mocked in our culture. How can you trust in God when you mock His Word? It's even outlawed in our government systems and in our public institutions. Bible-believing Christians are considered narrow-minded hate mongers. And think about it. Even our children are taught that the universe and all that is in it, including man, originated spontaneously as a result of a large explosion, what they call a Big Bang that happened some 15 billion years ago. My friends, please hear me. There's no indication that this nation trusts in God for anything other than its prosperity and its pleasure. Most of our leaders and the people who have elected them have zero desire to know and to worship and to serve the one true God that has revealed himself in Scripture and, again, in the person and the work of his beloved Son, our Savior, our Lord, and our King, Jesus Christ. And therefore, this is a nation that has no assured reliance, as Merriam-Webster's dictionary would say, no assurance assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of God. In fact, their God is, is one that is a false God, and they have placed their faith in something that doesn't even exist. Most American citizens see no need to trust in a God to save them from their sins by grace through faith in Christ. They don't trust Him to return in power and great glory as He has promised. They don't believe that, that He's going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's silly for most people. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, in verse 18, that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in verse 22, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. According to Romans 1, 24 and following, we read that those who deny him as creator and reject him as Lord will ultimately be given over to the lusts of their hearts into moral impurity. Moreover, they will be given over to the degrading passions of homosexuality. And then he goes on to mention that finally they'll be given over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Yes, m man's mind can be intellectually brilliant, but when it comes to the realm of the physical, it is utterly depraved. 
I can think of no greater example of a depraved mind than some of what we see today, especially when a man who is clearly a male says that he identifies as a female and does everything he can to become one. And if that isn't bad enough, then what has to happen is he insists that everyone else embrace, even celebrate his delusion at the risk of being labeled transphobic or suffer some other social, even legal consequence. Indeed, as we look at man in relation to God, we see what God has said, and it's not a good thing. He tells us that unsaved men and women are described as, as, as being darkened in their understanding, Ephesians four eighteen and following. He goes on to say that they are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. These are the people that say they trust in God? No wonder they're in such a panic today with this pandemic. No wonder they don't understand what on earth is happening, where everything is ultimately going. The Word of God goes on to tell us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man, in other words, an unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Not that he will not, but that he cannot understand them because he is spiritually appraised. But the depraved mind, dear friends, is also, therefore, unable to really see life in the world around him through the lens of spiritual truth. And because of this, people struggle greatly, especially in times of crisis. We've seen a lot of it of late. Natural disasters, tornadoes, floods, now pandemics, other great tragedies. People are filled with anxiety. They're gripped with fear. But isn't it interesting that right now the whole world is basically shut down because of this virus, one that threatens everything that we hold dear? In light of that, what happens to people who place their trust in some fabricated God that doesn't exist. Suddenly they realize how powerless their God is to somehow sustain them and give them hope and confidence and clarity in the midst of their trial. Suddenly they're confronted with the, the reality of their idolatry. Suddenly people are confronted with the fragility and the brevity of life. They're brought face to face with their own mortality. We look around today and people have no understanding, no answers, no hope, no help. All they can do is turn to the anesthetizers of life. We're seeing this today in this coronavirus pandemic. I find it interesting COVID-19, as it's called, is a coronavirus that originated from Wuhan, China, and it is a microscopic virus particle 
that is 0.125 microns in size. The average human blood cell is 5 microns in diameter. So a micron is, is about 1 25,000th of an inch. Yet this microscopic virus is killing thousands and bringing every system of the world to a screeching halt. I think of how man frets over weapons of mass destruction, and rightfully so. Yet the greatest of them all has been and will continue to be microscopic viruses. Doesn't this strike you as supernatural? Is there not something remarkably inexplicable about the power of something so infinitesimal? Something so highly contagious that it can cause these flu-like symptoms, including fever and a cough and shortness of breath, and in some cases result in respiratory failure. Is there not something profoundly humbling with this? Despite all man's great accomplishments, even his ability to frankly, destroy the entire planet with nuclear warheads, he is still vulnerable to this microscopic virus. And even if he survives it, he's still going to die. And of course, God reveals to us that indeed the wages of sin is death. Disease and death are perpetual reminders of God's curse upon sin and man's need for saving grace through faith in Christ. Let me give you a little history of pandemics. They're nothing new. Epidemics of various diseases have ravaged mankind throughout history. Cholera, typhoid, typhus fever, influenza, measles, dysentery, smallpox, and the notorious pandemic outbreak of bubonic plague known as the Black Death also known as the pestilence, which devastated Europe from 1347 to 1352, killing an estimated of a number of people between 1 and 200 million. The disease was carried by fleas on rodents, most notably the brown rat. And it originated in Central Asia, was taken from there to Crimea by mongrel warriors and traders, and then it entered Europe via Italy, carried by rats on the Genoese trading ships sailing from the Black Sea. And when Martin Luther was dealing with the Black Death, he wrote some very interesting words that can help inform how we approach things today with what we're having to deal with. And this comes from a letter that he wrote to Reverend Dr. John Hess entitled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. Here's what Luther said. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me 
And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God, end quote. It's interesting, in that day, many Europeans thought it was divine punishment for sin. And indeed, sin was rampant then as it is today. So, with a renewed sense of religious fervor, they sought to purify Europe. And so, they especially focused on the Jews. They even blamed them for the outbreak, which some are doing even to this day. Jews by the thousands were massacred, many of them fled to Poland where they were welcomed. And then in 1918 through 1919, there was the Spanish flu that infected one-third of the world population, killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide, including 675,000 Americans. And by the way, that was before air travel that could help spread a virus from continent to continent in a matter of hours. So these pandemics are are nothing new, but I want to give you a biblical perspective, some, uh, uh, some biblical insights regarding these things. And I pray that this will bring both clarity and comfort to those of you who have ears to hear. I have a number of things to say. I'm not going to be able to cover it all, uh, this, this time, but I hope to finish it perhaps the next time. But first, I want you to understand that All diseases are a consequence of God's curse against sin. If we look at the Old Testament, we see that God used pestilence, which could be translated plagues or diseases, pandemic diseases, as a means of judgment. In fact, in Exodus, we see the plagues that God sent uh, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians to judge them hopefully bring them to a place of repentance and to bring them to a place of understanding God's glory and his power. In Exodus 9, 14, we read, I will send all my plagues, there it is, plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. In verse 16, he says, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. We also see in the Old Testament that God frequently warned the rebellious Israelites that he would punish them with pestilence during their wilderness wanderings. In fact, in Numbers 16, verse 49, we read how God judged his people with a plague that destroyed 14,700 of them. And again, in chapter 25, verse 9, he sent another plague that killed 24,000. As always, the goal of divine judgment upon his covenant people Israel in Old Testament was not only to judge sin, as he promised he would, but also to bring them to repentance, to bring them to a place of reconciliation with himself and so that he could restore them to covenantal blessing. And we see this, for example, when, when God appeared to, to Solomon in, in 2 Chronicles seven thirteen through 16. There, you may recall, he presented the conditions of of national forgiveness for 
for Israel, which would include humility, prayer, a longing for God, and genuine repentance. And in verses 13 through 14, he said this, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send, catch this, pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. But many years later, because of their covenantal unfaithfulness, especially their idolatrous practices. Ezekiel described how God was going to bring the Babylonians under the command of Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment upon an idolatrous Judah by conquering Jerusalem. And in Ezekiel 5.12, we read about the plague that was used there. He said, one-third of you will die by plague. In other words, some kind of pandemic disease. Or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you, and one-third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheathe the sword behind them. It's interesting that Jesus also linked pestilence with famine that would come upon the world during the pre-kingdom judgments, also known as the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, just prior to our Lord's physical return. In Luke 21, 11, Jesus predicts that there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues, which again refers to any epidemic disease with a high death rate. Various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven and so forth. It's interesting in the original language, the words plagues and famines sound alike. And that's by design. There, there is a play on words. Plagues is loimoi and, and famines is limoi. And this underscores how the two are connected. But it's important to understand that this coronavirus epidemic that we are experiencing is, is not a specific act of divine judgment targeting a specific group. But rather, it is a general act of divine judgment upon a fallen and sin-cursed world. Dear friends, this is just the natural consequence of God's curse upon sin, described in Genesis 3 and expanded throughout Scripture. In Romans 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in Romans 6, 23, he says that the wages of sin is death. Now, we all know that we live in a fallen world where the effects of sin continue to plague all of us. The fall affects everyone. We see it in, in aging. We see it in illnesses. We see it in injuries and in natural disasters and ultimately death. And we will continue to experience the effects of the curse until Christ returns and ultimately destroys what is called the last enemy, which is death. God wants us to see and he wants us to experience the sinfulness of sin and the hideous miseries that it produces. God summarizes the devastating consequences of sin in the world with just one word, and that is 
death. God told Adam in Genesis 2:17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And throughout the word of God we see there are three aspects to this concept of death. There is first of all spiritual death. For example in Ephesians 2:1 we read that prior to salvation we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritual death is a, is a state of, of spiritual alienation from God that renders man unresponsive to divine truth and utterly dependent upon the miracle of regeneration to raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life. But also death includes physical death, which is that gradual process of, of degradation and deterioration that occurs in all of us. And of course, that's exacerbated by disease and by injury. And then the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then also there is eternal death. Those who die in unbelief, God tells us, will be forever separated from him. And they will be placed in the solitary confinement of the lake of fire, as we read in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. In fact, John refers to this as the second death in Revelation 20 and verse 6. But we must understand, dear friends, that God's curse upon sin and its widespread consequences can be seen not only in this coronavirus epidemic, this pandemic, But we can see it in every human relationship and, frankly, in everything that God has created. And this is the perspective that we must have. In order to better understand this, I'd like to take you to Romans chapter 8, especially verses 19 through 22. And there we read about creation's slavery to corruption. Paul begins by personifying nature as being in distress and earnestly expecting a particular event that is going to radically change its current state. In verse 19, we read, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Anxiously longing. In the original language, it carries the idea of having a yearning desire. And the imagery here is that of of watching with, with, with an outstretched head, standing on tippy toes, looking to see something. It, it, it reminds me of, of military wives that are, that are looking for their husband to come off of the plane so they can be reunited after a long deployment. And we read also here that, that, it, that, that, that they wait eagerly. It waits eagerly. Creation waits eagerly which further adds to that notion of, of waiting with great anticipation, but also with, with, with confident patience. And what are they waiting for? Well, for the revealing of the sons of God. The apocalypsis, the uncovering, the unveiling, the revelation, the full disclosure of that glorious time when the curse is going to be removed, when Christ returns in glory, when he renovates the earth and returns it to Edenic splendor. This will be the time of the revealing of the sons of God. 
Paul expands upon this in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 3, where he says, We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, what happened to God's perfect creation that has resulted in such universal calamity? Well, in verse 20, we see the answer. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. Now, we must remember that originally, according to Genesis 131, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. So Adam and Eve were perfect physically. They were perfect spiritually. They were capable of living forever in that perfect environment. In fact, prior to the fall, there were no uninhabitable places upon the earth. There were no hurricanes, there were no tornadoes, no natural disasters, no deserts, no polar ice fields, no harmful bacteria or viruses or diseases or earthquakes, and certainly no fallen human nature. None of that was there. But something happened at the fall. In Genesis three sixteen through 19, we read that God cursed Adam and Eve because of sin. And all of mankind and all of his creation, all because of their sin. And, and this helps us better understand Paul's statement in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. He subjected it, notice, to futility. The term means aimlessness, uselessness, the inability to reach a goal or to fulfill a purpose. And what is that? Why did God create all things? To bring glory to himself. But because of sin, all of that got wrecked. Because of sin, the creator cursed his creation. He cursed all of mankind and all his animate and, and, and non-rational, inanimate creation. No longer would it exist as it was originally intended. We see this, by the way, reflected in physics, in the law of entropy. In the law of entropy. The second law of thermodynamics states that, that all matter and energy in the universe are in a constant state of entropy an irreversible process of continual degradation and deterioration. A law, by the way, which utterly refutes the theory of evolution that says just the opposite. Only a fool would think that you could take your pickup truck, set it out in a field, and come back 10,000 years later and see that it's turned into an F-18 Super Hornet fighter jet. It doesn't work that way. So the Creator cursed His creation. Yet isn't it interesting, dear friends, that, that even with the curse, we, we can still witness the, the beauty, the glory, the majesty of God. But folks, what we see is nothing like what it was originally. And Today we see His curse manifested in, frankly, a very violent earth. We look around the world and we see that much of the earth is uninhabitable due to extreme cold, due to enormous bodies of water, 
It's subject to pestilence, to poisonous snakes, <laughs> to chiggers and ticks. I hate those little guys. To mosquitoes, to weeds, to drought, to floods, erosion, tornadoes, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, and what we call natural disasters. But all of these things, dear friends, are ultimately a consequence of sin, a perpetual reminder of how God's holiness has been offended. They remind us that the world is not a safe place in which to live, a home for which we are ultimately suited. I hear people talk about how they want to go back to nature. You know, I've been all over the world, and I've been in remote wilderness areas for extended periods of time, and I can tell you it is a hostile place. It's a place that will kill you. We were originally created for something radically different in the realm of our relationship with God, in the realm of our relationship with man, in the realm of the world in which we live. But notice back to our text, at the end of verse 20 through verse 21, we see that he subjected it in hope. What a precious statement. He subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Beloved, someday all the disease and decay and human suffering and death and natural disasters brought on by the curse will cease to exist. The curse will be lifted at the second coming of Christ when he establishes his millennial kingdom, an intermediate state between his second coming and the eternal state. The, the, the millennial kingdom is really the, the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. It will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Eventually, the curse will all be reversed. But now creation remains, as it says in verse 21, in slavery to corruption. Again, that inevitable process of degradation and deterioration and futility in its ability to bring glory to the Creator as it was originally created to do. Well, how long is this going to happen? Well, the inspired apostle says, until the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, until God, through Christ, returns and liberates His creation from the bondage of sin. This is the hope that we have, dear friends. But until that glorious day, in verse 22 we read, we know that the whole creation groans. Stenazzo, from a term stenazzo in the original language, it means to make a deep, inarticulate sound conveying pain, conveying despair. The whole creation groans, he goes on to say, and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You see what he's saying, it's as though all of creation is groaning in pain, like a mother that is travailing in pain in the agonies of childbirth. You see, creation travails in the pain of labor as it prepares to give birth to a new life. It anticipates a, a glorious arrival of a new creation that will glorify God as it was originally intended to do, to glorify Him in all of its fullness. 
And so we learn here that God's curse upon his creation was not the result of something it did, but because of something man did. And therefore, the restoration of creation is inseparably linked to the restoration of man, the glory that is to be revealed to us that Paul spoke of in verse 18. And so it's for this reason, dear friend, for this reason that all of creation is, if you will, standing on its tippy toes, stretching out its neck, looking for, in great anticipation, the revealing of the sons of God. What an amazing thought. The prospect is so exceedingly glorious that, verse 23, he says, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Then he goes on to say, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Folks, this is the day that creation awaits with such earnest, the revealing of the sons of God. You see, we must understand an initial partial fulfillment of Romans 8 occurs at Christ's second coming. But the ultimate and complete fulfillment will not occur until the very end of the millennial kingdom. So as we read here, the curse upon the earth is, is going to be removed. It will be returned to the pristine beauty of the Garden of Eden. Acts 3.19, Peter calls it times of refreshing that will come from the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 21, he described it as, quote, the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And I love the way Zechariah puts it. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9, he says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. In his name, the only one. In his excellent book, Amillennialism and the Age to Come, a premillennial critique of the two-age model by Matt Wehmeyer, we see him summarizing how the Bible teaches that even though the millennial kingdom will be established on this present earth, the, the, the earth will be supernaturally renewed. Let, let me give you just a, a brief quote here, and I'm going to leave out many references that he has after every phrase. He says this, the curse of the ground will be lifted. The animal world will be tamed. Sickness and death will be greatly reduced, leading to great longevity of life. And even though sin and judgment will not yet be entirely eliminated, it will be a time of unprecedented prosperity for humanity. The land of Palestine in particular will be fertile and productive. Blessed by an abundance of rainfall and no longer subject to famine, being compared to the Garden of Eden by everyone who passes by. Beloved, one day God has promised that his creation that he subjected to futility when he cursed it at the fall of Adam, one day, as Romans 8.21 says, it will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And among many other things, pandemic diseases like coronavirus will be eliminated. This is the hope that we have in Christ. All physical infirmity and 
deformity will be remedied. Let me give you one example in Isaiah 35, beginning at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. During that time in the millennial kingdom, in the messianic age, disease will also be controlled supernaturally, perhaps through both prevention as well as cure. We're not sure how all of it will work, but the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 33, verse 24, and no resident will say, I am sick. Can you imagine that day? And wow, as we experience all of this, we long for it all the more. You see, this is merely part one of what creation is anxiously longing for. But may I remind you that at the end of the messianic age, God will incinerate the existing universe that's polluted by sin. Second Peter 3.10, we read that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, we read, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And Jesus promised in Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth will pass away. And the psalmist reminds us of this. In Psalm 102, beginning in verse 25, we read, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. Well, I hope this gives you some hope and some clarity. Next week, we will examine God's role in pandemics, especially this one, answering questions like, well, is He responsible for all of this? Uh, how can a loving God allow this to happen? Or does He? Did this just kind of sneak up on Him? Did, did, did this catch Him by surprise? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? And we'll also answer the question, you know, what should be our response, especially as Christians, to this pandemic from God's perspective? Well, my friends, in closing this morning, may I just remind you of the good news of the gospel, that we as sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God through faith in Christ. And ultimately, then, we can have the hope of all that we've talked about and more here today. And I challenge you, if you're not a believer, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, do not delay. Trust in Him today. Know full well that the wrath of God abides upon you, and unless you repent, you will one day face the Lord Jesus Christ, not as your Savior, but as your judge. And you, dear Christian, my dear church family, yes, today... We lament, we struggle, especially in light of this pandemic, but we do not struggle without hope. We need to learn to consider these things, as Paul said in verse 18, to contemplate these astounding truths that God has revealed to us. It carries the idea of how we need to analyze them, we need to meditate upon them, we need to anticipate them. We need to make them the center of gravity around which everything in our life must orbit. 
And then with Paul, we can say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, what triumphant hope we have in Christ. And I've attempted to summarize this doxology in poetic form, and I will leave you with this. Triumphant King, your glory bring and don the victor's crown. Magnify your glorious name and cast your rivals down. With sovereign might and world's full sight, complete your holy rout and raise your royal scepter high that every knee may bow. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as now in heaven. Exalted sit upon your throne that praise to you be given. For triumph great our hearts doth ache. O David's house restore. Messiah come to judge and save. With passion we implore. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will take these eternal truths and plant them deep within the heart of everyone who has ears to hear. That it might bring salvation to those who do not know you who have never trusted in you as their only hope of salvation, and also that it might be of deep encouragement and comfort to each of us who know and love you and long for your appearing, even as we long all the more during this time of crisis. Lord, minister to us as only you can do, and be glorified in all that we say, all that we do that in all things Christ might have the preeminence. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.